Okay, so I got a story for you. Crazy story, true story, slightly confusing story, so focus, all right? <laughs> Here I was a few years ago, went to a spring Mizzou football game, and it was freezing cold. I don't know why we were there, but I met some guys, and we're supposed to be tailgating and having fun, but it's so cold. I have so many layers on. I feel like the Michelin man, right? And we're talking, hanging out, and all of a sudden, somebody walks up. A guy walks up to me and says, hey, are you Keith from The Crossing? And I'm like, I don't even know my family could recognize me. How is it you know? I don't know who you are. Yes, I am. And he goes, well, I was driving through here taking a family to the hospital because uh, they were, their kid was in a car accident. And I saw you when I was driving through. I came back and got you and asked you if you'd come pray with them. So I was like, wow. So sure, I'll be there in a, a few minutes. So I, I end up going up in the hospital to a, the floor they told me to go to. And I recognize this family. I don't know them well at all, but, but recognize them, know them a tiny bit. And I, I, before I prayed with them, I was like, tell me the story. How, what are we doing? And they had gotten a call that their teenage son had been in a car accident and had been rushed into the emergency room. They had not had a chance to see him. They just showed up. And so they were waiting outside, praying, hoping for the best, not exactly sure how serious anything was. Well, let's just call that uh, teenage boy who's in the emergency room in, the, uh, in surgery. Let's just make him a name. We'll call him Bob, okay? So, so Bob has a friend, Joe, and Joe's dad comes to be with his family. And just while they're going through this surgery, while they're waiting, just comes and hangs out with them. Well, about an hour after I got home, I had told my kids about this because they knew the, the kids involved. They knew Bob. And, and about an hour or so later, they come upstairs and go, Bob's not in the emergency room. He just woke up. He just walked upstairs at his house. And I'm like, no, I was just with his family outside the surgery. I, I know what I'm talking about. Teenagers, you can't trust them, right? Like, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. So here's what happened. Bob's dad and Joe's dad are sitting there waiting for Bob to come out of the emergency room, the doctor to come tell him what happened. And while they're waiting, the nurse comes in and says, hey, come back here. I want to give you the possessions of Bob. You know, before we took him in the emergency room, why don't you show uh, you his possessions and give those to you? And they went back and they dumped out his possessions. And as they sat there on the table, all the stuff he'd been wearing and all, they realized that wasn't Bob's stuff. That was Joe's stuff. They were buddies. It was Joe who was in the emergency room and his dad learned about it for the first time as he saw his son's stuff displayed out on this table. Now there's a, a good ending to the story. The, the, the kid fully recovered and, and is totally fine. But can you imagine being in that situation where you think you are there comforting your friend and then realizing it's your son that is in the emergency room. It's your son that's in surgery. The question those fathers had to wrestle with was not just who are you, because this is a case of mistaken identity, right? It's not just who are you, though. It's whose are you? Who, whose boy are you? Who, who do you belong to? Which, which dad needs to be worried and in, in, in prayer because it's their son in there? Whose are you? It's the question, I think, that the book of Ephesians is making us answer Whose are we? I know it's not great grammar. I know it's awkward to say, but it, that uh, uh, awkward phrase contains a lot of theological truth and power. Whose are you? Who do you belong to? 
That's what Ephesians wants us to answer because we've been taking on the identity the culture has given us instead of living in the identity that Jesus has given us. We're halfway through the book of Ephesians. Today marks the halfway mark. Uh, and, and if we had to take a banner and put it over the first half of Ephesians, I think it would say, remember who you are. Remember who you are. The last six weeks that we've gone through the first half of this book, we have not seen instructions about how to live the Christian life. That all comes in the second half that Dave starts next week. But the first half is remember who you are in Jesus. Remember your identity. Don't mistake your identity for the identity that the culture is trying to give you. Remember all that God has done for you. So what is Ephesians telling us about our identity? Who are we? Well, we are loved. Before the world was ever created, God set his love on you. And in Jesus, you're blessed, blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're, you're adopted, that God has brought you into his family as his son or daughter, that you've been redeemed. You've been bought out of sin and slavery with the blood of Jesus, that you've been marked with the Holy Spirit, literally tattooed. See, God's way of saying, you are now mine. You belong to me. You've been given a hope that will never perish, spoil. It'll never fade away. That God's resurrection power, the same power that he raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in your life and on your behalf. That you are saved by grace and that you are united with every other Christian around the world. That they now, in Jesus, are your brothers and sisters. This is what's true of you. More true of you than, than your name. More true of you than your race. More true of you at a deeper level than what nationality you are from. This is who you are in Jesus. Whether you remember it or not, whether, you, whether it feels good or not, on Sunday, but also on Monday, right? And during the week and on the weekend. When you walk into a business meeting tomorrow that you're unsure about and are feeling a little insecure, you walk in as an adopted son or daughter of Jesus. When you sit down at the computer late at night, not sure where your surfing of the web will take you, you do it as a redeemed redeemed person bought out of sin and slavery so that sin no longer has mastery over you. When you go on a date, you go as one who's been marked, sealed, tattooed as belonging to God. When you struggle with mental health issues, anxiety, depression, whatever they may be, whatever the challenges you face, you do it as one who is deeply loved by God because of whose you are. Because you belong to Jesus, therefore these are the things that are true. But that doesn't fit in the modern culture we live in. It's not the message our culture tells us that we belong to Jesus. We think, what we hear over and over and over, is that we belong to ourselves. I think right now 1 Corinthians 16 might be the verse that is most out of step with the culture. It says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. See, it tells us that, that we no longer belong to ourselves. We don't belong to our family. We don't belong to other people. We, we belong fundamentally to Jesus because he paid for us. He bought us with his blood. 
And yet the culture keeps telling us that we are free, we belong to no one, you are your own. You be about you. And, and, and that is, is captured, I think, in this quote that, wait for it, Kim Kardashian gives to Vogue magazine. Now, no, I don't read Vogue, so stop judging me, right? Uh, a couple of friends sent it to me. But, but here's what she says, and I, and I think she speaks for our culture. For so long, I did what made other people happy. Now, evidently, that's bad. Don't make other people happy. I think in the last two years, I decided I'm going to make myself happy. That is good. And that feels not just good, really good. And even if that created changes and caused my divorce, I think it's important to be honest with yourself about what really makes you happy. I've chosen myself. I, I think it's okay to choose you. My 40s are about being team me. Now, now my point is not to pick on Kim Kardashian because I think she just does a fabulous job of articulating, of vocalizing, of saying what it is that our culture believes. What we hear every day from, from uh, media or social media or billboards or whatever it is that we consume and what we even start to hear within our own head. It's this cultural pressure that, that is trying to conform us to its image to think that we belong to ourselves. And we wouldn't say it like she did. We probably wouldn't be as articulate as she is. But we say it all the time. It slips out of our mouth of how we live our life, that we think it's my life and my choices and my time and my money and, and, and my vacation and my future and my body and you know whatever it is. So, so what happens is, is that we find the culture, the Kim the Kim K culture, and, and, and Jesus being at odds. Because to become a Christian means to leave team me and be a part of team Jesus. It means to, to, to stop choosing self and to start dying to self. To become a Christian means that I relinquish, I, I give up, I, I turn over the right to pursue my own happiness, and I recognize that, that, that my happiness can only be found in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. So, so what we're, we're finding is that we have to answer this question. Are we more influenced by, by Kim K, by the world, by the culture that, that she vocalizes, or are we listening and following the countercultural movement of Jesus? And that brings us to the end of chapter 3 and a prayer that Paul makes on behalf of this church. I mean, I literally mean this church. He's praying for the church in Ephesus, but I think he's also praying for you and me. And it's the second time he's prayed in this book. So within three chapters, he, he's now offering the second prayer. It's like praying his way through this book. And when we read his prayer, what we're going to find is that it is a meandering prayer. And I don't know about you, but I take hope in that because oftentimes my prayers feel meandering, right? They hop from one thing to the next. I wish they were well thought through and well composed and perfectly articulated. But the reality is that my prayers aren't. I, I'm thankful that God is, is more concerned about my heart than he is my eloquence. You don't need to feel pressure in your prayers to be eloquent. You can just have a meandering prayer that pours itself out to God. So here's what he prays for in, in, in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, now, Paul's pointing out that he's on his knees when he makes this prayer. And I think that's because it's not customary in Judaism to kneel when you pray. 
the, the, the custom was to stand and pray. So here's this picture of the wailing wall in Jerusalem where they are standing and, and praying. It, it's not that praying on your knees was unknown in the Old Testament. It's just that it wasn't the norm. So Paul's making a deal. Hey, I'm on my knees when I pray this for you guys. And, and I, wonder, I wonder if maybe we should get on our knees sometimes when we're praying to God. Sometimes I hear comments from, from people in church, from friends, people who come to the worship service, and, and they say that they're not comfortable with some of the things that go on in the service. And I'm like, oh, like, what do you mean? They go, well, it turns out it's about kind of the physical things. Like I, when people raise their hands, like when they're singing, they're like, I, I don't know, I think that's weird. I go, really? It's weird? Yeah, it's weird to raise your hands. Nobody does that. I go, well, what else? And I go, well, like when the worship leader maybe tells us to, to open up our palms, take a posture of openness toward God, it seems weird. I mean, nobody does that kind of stuff. We never do that. And, and, and anything else? Yeah, like when we send things to the cross, you know, our troubles or our sins, and occasionally we'll do that. It, it, it just makes me uncomfortable. And I'm listening going, huh, oh. Interesting, interesting, interesting. But, but what, what I find is, here, here, what I find really interesting is these are the exact same people who on Saturday are at the ball game raising their hands, hugging, high-fiving, jumping up and down, and acting like fools, right? And, and, and so you have to, you have to wonder, yeah, because you see men do it and women do it and old people do it and young people do it. It's just like this big group hug when something exciting happens. So you have to wonder why is it okay to do it at the game on Saturday, but not in church on Sunday? What if, what if you had to watch a, a game, a really important game, your favorite team, and you could only show the same emotion that you do in church? <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, like there's a big play, and, and you just go, hmm. Right. Because you can't say anything, because you don't in church, so it wouldn't be as fun, would it? You see, God knows that our body and our soul are connected. And by the way, Paul doesn't have our hang-ups. And that's what they are, our hang-ups. And so Paul gets down on his knees when he prays. Now, why? Why? Why is he drawing our attention to this? Why does it help me? Or does it? Well, I think when I'm on my knees, it, it makes me uh, a little bit more humble. It causes me to recognize my need. When you're on your knees, you don't feel superior to anyone. When you're on your knees, you're, you're begging for mercy. When you're on your knees, you're, you're acknowledging that you're dependent. Look, I can't do anything. I can't take care of myself. I'm down here on my knees. I can't move fast. And it's hard for me to feel superior to anyone. Like, I, I, I don't feel like I can boss anybody around on my knees. But isn't that how our prayers sometimes sound? Less like prayers, requests, and more like instructions about how God should be acting for us. Our prayers start to sound like we're bossing people around. But if you're down here on your knees, you're kind of reminded that I'm not God's boss, am I? So I need to humbly make requests. I, I need to show my weakness, my vulnerability, my dependence before him. 
I think that's what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 5 when he says, by myself, I can do nothing. He's getting at his dependence, his neediness. Jesus said, by myself, I can do nothing. What he means is I depend on my Father. It turns out that, that prayer, that, that prayer isn't done out of self-discipline, but out of sensing your own helplessness. People who feel their helplessness, their need and their dependence, they pray. And you know who doesn't pray? People who feel self-confident. People who, 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 who take and put their confidence in themselves, they don't find much need to pray. And so I think Paul gets down on his knees to pray because he's trying to get his body to help his mind, his heart, his soul, to remind him of how needy he is. And what's Paul pray for? Well, verse 15. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays for your inner being. He's praying for your inner being, your, your, that it would be strengthened by God's Spirit. Meanwhile, we are very concerned with our outer being. Right? Paul's on his knees before God asking him to strengthen your inner being, and we're very focused on our outer being. I mean, God nails us in, in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We are, we are consumed with our outer appearance. We're consumed with our body. We're consumed with our attractiveness and our style and what we're projecting and how that will affect our reputation and our own health. I mean, how many times have you been in a group and somebody said, hey, could we just pray for my inner being? It needs to be strengthened. The common prayer is, can you pray for my Aunt Edna's hip surgery? But Paul's praying for your inner being. 2 Corinthians 4, again Paul, same topic. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. I think we take Paul here and completely turn him upside down. We switch out these two words. See, the way we would write this, if it were true to our real life, is though inwardly we are wasting away, yet outwardly we are lifting and sculpting and starving and Botoxing our way to perfect health. Now, now look, I'm not, I'm not, criticizing anybody for working out. That's great. I, I really don't care if you work out not at all or a little bit or a lot, you know, what, whatever. But what Paul's really getting at is don't do it to the neglect of your inner being. Don't love your outer being in neglect of your inner strength. Don't practice physical disciplines without spiritual discipline. 
Because we, we need to be strengthened inside because no matter how strong or how flexible you are, no matter how perfect your BMI is or how much you've optimized your sleep patterns for success, none of that will keep you from the problems and challenges that life throws at you. And so he prays for our inner strength because it's out of that inner strength that we are able to face disappointment without giving in to complaining and despairing. It's the way we're able to face our friends, our our, our co-workers whose lives seem to be going better than ours. Their family's going better, their job, their career is going better. And inner strength allows us to be happy for them without being jealous about them. It's inner strength that gives us the ability to be kind and loving in the face of unkindness. It's inner strength given by God that allows us to to, uh, have peace in the midst of a health crisis. When everything falls apart, the the person with inner strength by God's inner strength is able to have peace and equanimity and poise and courage. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is where Paul's going. He wants you to have Christ living in your heart. But this word for dwell, it's not the dwell, it's not the word that Paul could have chosen. It means kind of like a stop by visitor. This is the dwell like somebody who lives here. In other words, he doesn't want Christ to be a visitor in your life, but to come and set up camp and be comfortable. I mean, you know the kind of friends that you have and the, that, that some people's houses you walk into and maybe you wait for them to ask if you would like something to drink. And in other people's houses, you walk in, go to the refrigerator, and take whatever you want, right? Because there's a, there's a difference. There, there's a difference. I love to go into people's pantries, by the way. You can learn so much. Like, where are you going? Oh, I'll just be back one second. Because I love to see the protein powder right next to the double-stuffed Oreos, you know? And I like, <laughs> the inconsistency in me is, is right here. I, I, I don't know. I feel good about it. So, so God is praying that Jesus would have full access to your heart full access to your house. You know that closet over here that you have locked? Or that part of your life that you've got a password on? What Paul is praying is that you would unlock that door for Jesus and open it wide up. That there would be no passwords, no secrets, no rooms, no part of your life that is kept away from Jesus. Back to verse 17. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? How can you know the unknowable? Well, that's the position that Paul's in. He's trying to to explain the unexplainable to them. How do you explain email in the internet in 1994. Here's the Today Show. Katie Couric, Bryant Gumbel, Phyllis Rashad. Back now at 56 past, I wasn't prepared to translate that as I was doing that little tease. Oh, that's that right. little mark with the A and then the ring around it. At? See, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie said she thought it was about. Yeah. Oh. But I'd never heard it. I'd never heard it said. I'd always seen the mark, but never heard it said. And then it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. Uh, (laughs) I heard something big fight up in the lunchroom the other week. (laughs) There it is. Violence at NBC. GE com. I mean, what Allison should know. What what is internet anyway? Internet is uh, that 
massive computer right. network. Mm -hmm. The one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big? How does one, what do you write to it, like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. It, I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? No, she can't say anything in 10 seconds or less. Oh. Oh. Allison will be in the studio shortly. What, is, what does it mean? It's a, it's a giant computer network made up, made up of, uh, started from... Oh, I thought you were going to tell us what this was. It's like a, look a computer in the billboard. It's not, it's, it's not in it. It's, it, it's, it's a computer billboard, but it's nationwide, right. and it's, it's several uh, universities and everything all joined together. And right. And others can access it. And, right. And it's getting bigger and bigger all the time. Just it came great. in really handy during the quake. A lot of people, that's how they were communicating out to tell family and loved ones they were okay because all the phone lines were down. I was telling Katie, you know. But you don't, need, you, don't need that, you don't need a phone line to operate no. internet? No. <laughs> it, is, it is easier to explain the internet to an ant than the love of God to you and me. It's easier to explain electricity to an ant than it is to explain the infinite love that God has for you and me, to finite creatures. That's why Paul's on his knees praying because he's trying to tell them uh, about the, 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 the unknowable, the inexplainable. So let's go back. What does he ask for? He wants us to know. He wants you today. He's praying back then for you today to know how wide and long and high and deep. Just to be able to grasp it. That's all he wants you to do is grasp that love. How wide is the love of Jesus? Everything in our, our, our world tries to exclude us. right? Universities exclude us if we're not smart enough. Businesses exclude us if we're, not, if we're not qualified enough. Teams exclude us if we're not fast enough. Does God exclude us? No, no. His, his love is so wide that he includes you. He includes everyone who comes to him. He doesn't turn any of them away. But does he know what I did last night? Last week, last year? Yeah, his love was so wide that it had room for Paul the murderer and David the adulterer and Peter the liar and the coward because God's love is so wide, it has room for you. How long is God's love? It's long enough that it lasts forever. You've probably been abandoned before by someone in your life, a parent, a spouse, a, a friend. Someone has, has, has ghosted you. People say that they love you, but they don't always mean it. Not in the way God does, because God's love is permanent. God's love never runs out. It never fails. How high is God's love? It's high enough to reach down into the gutter, to reach down into hell, and to bring you to heaven. How deep is God's love for you? Well, the depth of love, one way to measure it is by how willingly it is given. If you tell a little boy to apologize to his sister for hitting her, or he'll be in more trouble, you have room, reason to doubt the sincerity of his apology. It was not given willingly. And the same is true for love. You cannot force love. That's why when Jesus is talking about his life in John 18, he says, no one takes it. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to pick it back up. See, that's where God's love is seen the most, is in the cross. The earliest Christians, they saw the cross, the poles. And they, they said, I think it's probably pointing to how high and deep and wide and long 
is the love of God for us. When they saw the cross, they thought of this verse and they thought of Jesus with his arms stretched out and they said, that's a love that will never fail. And so that's why we have to live like you're loved because you can be loved and not live like it. That's why we must become who you are to live like you're loved by God. Let's pray. Before, before we pray, let me just ask you, what difference would it make in your life if you could grasp what Paul's praying here? That the, you could grasp how wide and high and long and deep God's love is for you in Jesus. Would it make a difference? Wouldn't it mean that we wouldn't be so consumed with worry and fear? Because we know that God who created all things, who knows the end from the beginning, who watches over us, he loves us. So worry doesn't need to have a grip on my heart because I'm loved by God. What about seeking other people's approval? If I, if I believe that, that God loved me in Jesus, I might not care so much what everybody else thinks about me. I might have to live up to their expectations or to conform to their desires because God knows me and God loves me in Jesus. Oh God, we, we put our voices right there with Paul and pray for ourselves that we could know the unknowable, that we could grasp how wide and high and long and deep is God, your love for us, God. I pray, Father, that we would grasp it and live it, that it would affect our head, our heart, and our hands. May you make it so. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May God open your heart so that you, along with all the saints, may be able to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is his love for you in Jesus. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great Sunday.